Today we're discussing democracy as an always-on platform and envisioning a world where you carry institutional change in your pocket. That is telekinetic. Greetings. I am Mitch. You are here. And Jamie Skella is in Melbourne, where he tackles social problems as a strategic advisor and technologist extraordinaire. Among his many projects is My Vote, later spun into Horizon State. And through this lens, Jamie's going to address how technology can modernize and further democratize the election process, achieving what direct democracy is always intended to do provide a ubiquitous, all access platform for states of change whether it's electing a global leader or voting on who should headline your town's music festival. Now, if you ask me, the answer to both of those questions is Herbie Hancock, but eh, that's why we vote. Uh, One logistical caveat before we begin, this was recorded in mid-December 2020, and uh, who knows what the hell may have happened in politics between now and the time you hear this episode. I just hope future me was able to visit Disney World before it became a military base. And with that most awkward of introductions, let's welcome Jamie to the show. What time is it anyway? Okay, Jamie, good to have you on the show. Thanks for hopping on to talk about digital democracy and... Well, I suppose you probably have a buzzword or two that I'm not familiar with. Not really. Sorry to disappoint you, Mitch. Um, it's uh, yeah, democratic <laughs> yeah. innovation is about as about as buzzwordy as it gets. But yeah, look, thanks for for having me. It's great to to finally chat. I still recall pretty vividly actually reading an article you wrote back in 2015. Um, I find your lack of faith in autonomous cars disturbing. I think that's the first piece that I read, and so I've been following along closely ever since. Um, so yeah, keep up the good work. It's it's been great. Yeah, I think we've both been stalking each other for a few years now because I I learned about how to explain uh, blockchain to my friends and family from your article (laughs) about how to explain it to your parents. So it works out nicely. Nice one. Well, you know what? That actually, that'll lead me to my first question because I think the knee-jerk reaction that anyone would have, not anyone, but a lot of folks who are very religious about their politics, if you were to say that, you know, democracy is a technology problem. They would say, no, no, I don't, I don't want that becoming a market. I don't want that being a thing that Silicon Valley is solving for. Like, that's not the problem. But I've heard you make a lot of great points as to why it is a technology problem. So mm. that, is, that is my first question to you. Why is democracy a technology problem in your eyes? I think it's probably important to, to take a, a quick step back and I guess look at like technology historically, uh, its purpose in, in society, uh, both historically and now in modern times. And, mm. and I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of conflation with, with technology and high technology and certainly high technology in Silicon Valley. I think those distinctions are important, but I think what's even more important to be thinking about is um, what technology represents for us and what it has represented for for the human condition uh, and for the progression of our species over time. And, mm. and really, fundamentally, technology um, is about improvement. We are separated from the animals in a few ways, but one of them is really our ability, our ability to, to to invent and to create and use tools. And you know, we don't we don't think about 
posture as a technology problem. And yet the chair is is a piece of technology which we created. Yeah. We we don't think about much of what we do in life as something which would necessarily be a technology problem. Everything is a technology problem uh, and democracy uh, is as well, if we want to talk about it in those terms. Uh, because I don't think anybody would argue that democracy is perfect, you know, that there are ways that we can go about improving it. Uh, and I think um, new technologies, things like blockchain certainly have a role to play in that. There's no silver bullet, but there's certainly things we can do to improve it. And, and it was identified uh, a few years ago through um, some early exploration into smart contracts and Ethereum that there just might be a good fit here. No, for sure. I mean, and I'm trying to hunt down someone who might be a good guest for just talking about like irrigation and, you know, how, how that plays into the theme of this podcast, which is a perfect example that I think, to your point, no one would ever consider to be a technology in, in 2020, right? But it is mm. one of the most prominent technologies in human history. <laughs> and yet it's just like, it seems like such an archaic thing, but it's like, no, it's it's the application of knowledge. That is the definition of technology. And so, yeah, it could be an iPhone app or it could be irrigation or the chair right. or the light bulb, you know, it's it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it makes perfect sense. And and blockchain is is interesting in this sense, I think, because the nature of it is to be democratic, right? It's like it's security through democracy in in many ways. Is that is that an accurate way to kind of put it? Yeah, I think so. If if we break the technology down, I mean, in simple terms, it's it's a database. Um, it's arguably uh, a very very secure and much much more secure than than most traditional databases. Yes, there are mechanisms built in that absolutely mean you could talk about it in terms of a democratic technology. But but for the purposes of voting and the way that we applied it at Horizon State, the way that we first started thinking about it um, back in 2015, 2016 you know, really, really early days of, of programmable blockchains is that, you know, if I was to transfer you were a fraction of a Bitcoin and that transaction by nature of the network and the design of the network, that it was immutable and irreversible and it was perfectly transparent and audible in all perpetuity, um, these sorts of properties, they seem at least on surface value to potentially very great properties for a, a voting system as well. Exactly. Um, and so that was, that, was, that was the concept at a very, very high level. What if we could sort of retrofit a blockchain-based transaction with all of those wonderful properties um, to represent a vote instead of you know, a transaction of value? So we got to work and over the course of about three months um, of leading some outsourced help, we, we built a prototype which worked and the idea was validated. And that was, that was a really exciting moment for me personally, having done something which seemed to uh, have turned out to be a world first, um, but also starting to think about the known implications and the unknown implications for what, what this technology potentially could achieve. Mm. Um, there are the very obvious things. I mean, uh, per the topic of this podcast, being able to um, have a constituency engaged uh, with democracy in a remote and distributed fashion. So being able to vote from your smartphone or from your PC in a secure and verifiable way. Um, obviously, there are efficiencies there. But then you start to think about the developing world where sometimes visiting a polling station is in fact a very unsafe place to be. And it's not only a matter of convenience, but it's a matter of safety. Um, and then you start to think about other scenarios like here in Australia where we ran a same-sex marriage plebiscite, which cost the taxpayer about $120 million and took many, many months to run. And all of a sudden, you're able to run that process for a million bucks and it can happen virtually instantly. And then you look at the United States this year and the allegations of, of voter fraud and what technology yeah. 
like this might mean for being able to deliver um, unprecedented trust to that constituency, to that group of voters. And so, you know, the knock-on effects are vast and they're compelling and interesting and fascinating. But the the most fascinating things are the, the things we don't understand yet about what society turns into post its you know, adoption, which I think is inevitable. Arguably, I was a little bit too early, but it, it's happening. <laughs> and it, and it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later. But let's talk about it in terms of decades. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I think I'll, I'll divide it into, into two parts because they're, they're both very interesting to me. And I think I kind of had a, a bit of a fulcrum there at the one point we started talking about the opportunity that's there. So I would say the, the transportation dilemma, um, and again, in regards to this podcast, right, you, you've laid out a lot of those points really well there as far as the, uh, what was that study? I mean, I think there've been several studies, but I know that I read a study somewhere about the, you know, nonlinear relationship between your proximity to a voting booth and your, your likelihood to vote. Absolutely. People are lazy, right? People are Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, well, and in America, as you pointed out too, it's, we had entire counties that were, you know, a thousand square miles having uh, culled down to one voting booth. And, and, and granted, it's not mandatory to vote in America, although we seem to think that it's a right and that we should be able to do it whenever we want. I know Australia is different as far as I know that you guys, it is compulsory for you guys, right? So it is. that's like a, that's a whole different thing altogether because then you've got the transportation problem of what you do when you get the actual ballots and the records. And if they happen to fall off a truck or whatever the case is, that's, you know, from a logistical standpoint, it's an inconvenience, but from a democratic standpoint, that's an injustice, right? Because mm-hmm. one, one vote should be equal to any other vote. Mm-hmm. So you've got all of these problems and then you, you illustrated the cost. I have no idea how much it costs to run presidential or otherwise elections in America or any of the other developed nations, but uh, it has to be gargantuan, obviously. And that plays, I, I think that's why it's such an interesting topic segueing into the opportunity you talked about there is like, because it's such an ordeal and because it's the cost and the, the operational cost of it, let alone the, the financial cost is just so high, it lends itself to being something that happens rarely. And in the same way that I would argue that someone who gets an annual performance review at work is being disenfranchised you know, against the opportunity to get a review every month or to have just plain old recurring feedback on a weekly or daily basis with, you know, with their boss, I would say the same thing for democracy. And I think that's kind of where you're going with it, right? Is like, if you can make this thing near frictionless to do, then voting can happen. You know, you don't have to vote for one person who's going to run your life for four years. You can vote every time a vote is necessary. You can vote on Absolutely. the smallest thing that would normally seem not worth bothering for from a logistical lift perspective because mm-hmm. it's so easy to do. Look, I'm, I'm glad you you brought this up because it provides um, some good context for, I guess, yeah, the, the, the purpose um, and, and the real potential benefit for using this kind of technology in this way. So I, for a bit of for a bit of, I guess, color. This technology was born out of a not-for-profit uh, democratic movement called MyVote. So, so back in 2015, the tech wasn't being built by my company called Horizon State. The tech was being developed as a prototype by me uh, volunteering my time within this, this MyVote organization. Founded by a fellow named uh, Adam Jacoby, really smart guy. He had this idea that, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic if, if a constituency could be engaged 
on a per policy basis um, where it made sense instead of a package of policies. In reality, nobody in this country, bar you know people that are very, very highly politically engaged, actually fully understand that package of policies anyway. They don't understand all of them. Um, they don't understand the list, so to speak, but then they don't understand the, the detail and the nuance uh, about those particular policies. And most of the voting that goes on, and I suspect it's very similar in in uh, the United States, is is really about party alliance and it's mm-hmm. about personalities, which is which is a real shame because that's that's not what elections are supposed to be about. Um, <laughs> they're, they're supposed to be about the policies that will be implemented and, and the, the people, you know, for all intents and purposes, could basically be faceless for all I care. And look, I understand that leadership's important and there are some good arguments for why we still need charismatic, uh, interesting, intelligent people in those roles. But Adam's vision was that we would be able to engage a constituency on policy matters as they arose, rather than waiting, you know, a few years to vote on a package of policies, which people don't really vote for anyway. And so uh, being really, really compelled by the proposition I wanted to help out and we started talking about how we might actually go about achieving this so far as a participatory, um, the lens of participatory engagement and how that might come about. Postal votes, um, ballot boxes, they're effective, but they're slow and they're expensive and they require a lot of human resource and all the things that we all understand uh, already very well. Um, Counting the votes can also be very, very slow as we've just discovered in the United States. (laughs) And really it was almost you know, serendipity, but I'd been doing a lot of research into into smart contracts and Ethereum. And I said, we need to be thinking about internet voting, basically, in, in plain terms, which scared the shit out of everybody because the only yeah. the only place in the world where internet voting is happening is Estonia. But I said, no, no I think <laughs> I think there really might be something that, that could make it viable, trustworthy, practical. Um, and there's still a huge amount of education and, uh, that needs to happen and trust that needs to be built. But I, but I do believe that there is a technology which would now enable us to vote online using our smart devices, which means that if we wanted to engage a constituency on a per policy basis, then this might be a very real thing finally. So that's, that's yeah, you're right. That is really one of the most exciting aspects of this is that we can really improve our democracy uh, and improve the quality of decision-making and improve the degree which people are engaged. Yeah. And I, and you know, to speak to internet voting and voting on your phone, which I can understand why people would be taken aback. It's, it is worth noting that I think the, the knee jerk kind of Luddite philosophy of thinking like, okay, we had ballot boxes. Now we do these digital voting machines and they were, you know, maybe they were hacked or maybe they weren't, but the point is they obviously can be because they go back to a central location, you know, that it's not a linear movement from voting in voting on paper to voting with a digital machine to voting on the internet with you know a blockchain foundation to it like it's i i think that's that's one of the things people need to come to understand if you're going to say hey we need to we we need to actually vote through the mechanism of the internet and not you know in in an actual physical location is that that level of security that's provided through blockchain is is not just uh, like a linear progression of doing something digitally. It's a, it's a whole different approach from a centralization standpoint and security yeah. standpoint. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can talk about it uh, being a paradigm shift if we want to use some, some buzzwords, but it, but it really is not as, not as simple as a, as a simple flick of the switch uh, and, and being that, that linear change. It's more complex than that. And I think the, the perception um, the psychology of thinking through that from a voter's perspective is also is also quite interesting. You know, for the longest period, um, a lot of a lot of the the, the rebuttals was was simply, well, you know, um, 
physical paper-based voting is still the most secure way to do it. For the life of me, I, I can't figure out you know how that how that argument holds any water. Um, but but that is that is a perception of a lot of people. Like clearly, obviously, me heading into a, a you know, a polling station writing on a piece of paper is the most secure way to do it. That's just a, a commonly held belief, which I find bizarre given the many, many touch points where, where that can become corrupted. Yeah. And, and again, and I mean, <laughs> America is such a, I mean, to our misfortune, I suppose, but this year and the past couple of years has been a, a great opportunity to learn just how, uh, how much faith we put in the notion of, of what we consider to be our policies and our, um, and our rules and regulations and what we consider to be secure because we have folks just flat out saying that, you know, someone walking in and casting a vote was, was fraudulent. And if that's the most secure way to do it, and it only takes spectral evidence from, uh, someone who disagrees on, on the political, you know, spectrum to say, no, that didn't happen. That's, uh, pretty far from secure, I would say. Um, yeah, you know, I'm really curious because you guys. So, as you guys spent time working on on these projects, what kind of stuff bubbled up from a perspective of, oh, well, now that we can do this more effectively and and more frequently, what are we going to do? Like, what are some of the things that people thought about as far as how you can how you could conduct a vote, or or I mean, just more broadly, how you could have a democracy using this this kind of frequency and efficiency. Well, part of the reason that we we spun the tech out of the not-for-profit movement and into this this new uh, commercial entity, Horizon State, was because of the commercial opportunity, uh, in fact, outside of, of government. When we started to get some good coverage uh, and the press latched onto what we were doing, there was a bunch of knocks on the door from, from body corporates, from businesses running AGMs, um, from smaller governments, uh, councils and departments within. So wherever there is a, a voting process which needs to be undertaken, there is no reason that the adoption of this, these new technologies can't or, or shouldn't be considered. The, the, the most challenging part of talking to everybody uh, from, from body corporates through to national governments uh, was indeed just the education process, right? So we were talking mm. about it in terms of blockchain and distributed ledgers, these new and fancy things, which obviously government in particular was um, very reserved about you know that they saw a huge amount of risk given the technology was so new and even the ones that we could explain it to uh, practically and have them understand it relatively robustly the the answers were more often than not still fantastic um we'll speak we'll speak you know next decade sort of thing um <laughs> so that was you know that that was disheartening but but not unexpected uh, meanwhile there are relatively small and progressive nations which were looking at its adoption uh, we had numerous meetings uh, with the government of gibraltar you know i traveled most of europe and, and even into the usa talking to to states iowa there was some there was some particular interest out of iowa which which we found mm. interesting ultimately the adoption to date has been by um, a few departments within south australian and new zealand government including the fisheries department here in south australia which is where i'm living now and a couple of councils um, over in new zealand so the adoption is starting but i think perhaps part of the conversation that needs to change is i guess really talking about blockchain less um and really about what blockchain represents because we really you know we're not we're not trying to to, to build and market and, and sell um a blockchain-based 
voting solution. What we're actually selling is is the world's most secure voting solution. Right. Does it matter if it's blockchain or something else? Well, we're not particularly, as long as it's provably secure, right? We don't have to keep on using those words, which at the moment, it can do one of two things. It really excites people or it really scares people. And of course, right. coming, back yeah. to the, coming back to the topic of technology through time, and indeed, the sort of terribly negative press, which new technologies often receive, at least initially, is that people are just inherently kind of scared of change. Yep. I, yeah, I'm I'm well versed in that, so I I hear you there for sure. It is funny to me because it it does lend itself so well to, as you were saying, components outside of government. When you consider that so many of, I mean, pretty much most of how we live our lives, even if we want them to be democracies, are not democracies. You know, our, our family structure is not a democracy. Work uh, environments are typically not democracies. Um, school whether it's a school you go to for free or a school you pay $50,000 a year to attend are usually not democracies. Yet, you know, most folks in any of those environments would be keen on the notion of, of at least to some degree, giving the power to the people and saying, hey, you know, we, we have an opportunity here to change something. It could be something small. It could be, I mean, I work a lot in local communities on on planning the cities and the transportation components of them and things of that nature and this kind of thing sounds to me like such a great opportunity to even do something location-based, right? Even to say, mm-hmm. you, because you are here in this traffic circle, you have seen this thing. Here is a proposal on how it could be changed. You can vote on it now because you've seen it. So we, we know that you're someone who has experienced this environment and therefore, you know, you have the right to vote on it. Um, yep. There's just, there just seems like so much opportunity to use it. And again, if, if we if you take democracy seriously and we think that's a thing we want to do with our lives and, and our societies, then I think you're exactly right that it makes perfect sense to think about the platform. Like we think about the platform backwards. We think about it as, you know, if democracy is valuable, it means this is how we elect our people to, to run our lives. When in reality, it should be, if democracy is valuable, we should think about how to operate democracy in the fairest and most sustainable and most secure fashion. And then, oh, by the way, I guess if that's how we want to elect people to govern us, then fine, we can do that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, yeah, Adam Jacoby would, would certainly argue, uh, the founder of my vote, of course, I'm referring to, would, would argue that um, our democracies aren't really quite democracies, uh, not at the moment anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I, it certainly sounds more democratic to me, and I guess this was part of the original allure, was, was that if we could govern ourselves more effectively using this kind of tooling, uh, have our say more frequently. And that's what it really comes down to, right? Everybody wants wants a voice, um, especially on the matters that affect them. And so what are the most ef- efficient and effective ways for us to provide any constituency that voice um, in a way that is going to be effective? Yeah. Our current model of political discourse, look, it served us well, arguably, some people would disagree uh, for a very long time now. But but democracy, at least in in the way it's currently orchestrated, uh, hasn't really changed in, in hundreds of years now. And everything else has. So it's sort of, yeah. it's sort of it definitely feels like a, a relic of the past. And our governance, um, our model of governance certainly doesn't feel like it, it's lived up to the modern world there. There just seems like it's, it's ripe for disruption. Sorry to use that yeah. word, but yeah, it really does. <laughs> Right, that's okay. I, you've hit your trifecta of buzzwords now, so you're, you're good to go. <laughs> you get, I need some kind of wacky sound when someone hits a trifecta of buzzwords <laughs> on this podcast. Well, speaking of wacky sounds, I, uh, I'll hit you with my hot take here because, which is uh, the portion of the show where I say something kind of half half-assed or uh, or conceived in a drunken stupor. 
and then you maybe tell me why I'm wrong or or maybe you agree. <laughs> Who knows? My hot take is that pre-election democracy is basically mob rule. The, the voting component of it is, is more or less mob rule and it's maybe it's organized and that's nice, but it is at the end of the day. Whereas post-election democracy, the result of the voting is actual civilization. Like when you decide, okay, we're going to we're going to agree to do the thing that most of us voted on, that is civilization. And that's the beauty of democracy. And the problem with many of our modern democracies is that they've just, to your point that you've mentioned before, they've just become party affiliations. And so citizens actually dismiss that whole second half of democracy, right? It's like you lost, so you're not going to support this whole movement forward that's happening that the majority of people or the majority of electors decided was going to be the case. So I guess I'm curious, well, I'm curious if you, if you have a personal perspective on that, a political perspective, and then if you think that any of the technologies we're talking about here actually help solve for that latter component, the, the post-election side of democracy. <sighs> um, look, I think the, the events that have taken place in the United States this year have been um, yeah, a splash of cold water to the face. It's, it's reminded us all, me in particular, um, certainly speaking uh, for myself, that our democracies are, in fact, relatively fragile. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked, you talked about party lines and the dismissing of outcomes. Um, well, we, we've seen that in its most intense fashion. Uh, with the most recent yeah. U.S. elections, and it's it's kind of scary, it's kind of sad, um, but I think you know, again, looking at change through the lens of opportunity, I think it's it's helped us clarify the gaps uh, in our models of governance, um, in legislation, in policy. Uh, it's helped us crystallize the things that are potentially wrong or need to be looked at, so we can start to think about again progress, and and technology will play a part in in resolving some of that. I think the scariest part for me over the course of the the past year is is not just how divided um, the United States uh, looks, at least from many thousands of kilometres away here in Australia, but how very quickly um, the uh, erosion of uh, facts has has taken place. You know, it's mm. it's almost it's almost as if if Donald Trump says it enough times, uh, it becomes true, at least at least for his his base. And yeah. where we've wound up um, without um, any sort of um, concession speech is, um, I think, well, yeah, certainly more sad than anything else in that in that particular case. But we're we're going to wind up in a, in a very interesting place. I think that all of the Western world, with respect to. Uh, Donald Trump's actions, because there's there's, a, there's an erosion of modern democracy currently underway. There's, there's there's no doubt about it, and we are going to need to think about ways to 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 change the process, to change the format, to change the model, to to change whatever we can about it to ensure that the, the fundamental principles of democracy are upheld and that we can continue to go on creating an improved way of life for as many people as possible. And hopefully, you know, as long as these these figureheads, these party representatives being elected. I hope that this is a blip on the radar and in future we can indeed, after the democratic process, come together and say, you know what, well, my guy lost or, or my guy won, but you know, we're all in this together now. So so let's 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 link arms and let, let's march forward and, and yeah. see what we can make of it. Anyway, look, I, I digress. In terms of the technology, I don't think I don't think the technology we build can solve for any of that. Yeah. That's that's the bottom line. Um, I think there's there's an information and education piece which is sorely needed. You know, 
it was 10 or 15 years ago, we were looking at the internet as this incredible tool to bring the world's large population together and create better access to information. But over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, we've now seen the world's populace come together and be bombarded with more misinformation than ever before. And we're seeing not progress happen more rapidly than ever before, but this this uh, erosion of, of basically at least the Western world based on misinformation and its impact. So I think um, what would be wonderful for us to try and solve for with technology in the very, very near term uh, is indeed the misinformation problem. You know, I copped a lot of criticism over the course and a lot of praise, but look, a, t- a tremendous amount of criticism <laughs> over the past few years with respect to Horizon State Solution because it didn't fix democracy. And I, my, my constant <laughs> uh, and consistent response was, well, it's not intended to fix democracy. There are the, the, the touch points along any process within our democratic process um, are vast. There are many. Um, so no, it, it doesn't fully solve for electoral fraud, but it, but it certainly helps stamp out corruption by stopping simple things like um, corrupt governments wheeling uh, boxes full of fake ballots into voting stations and yeah. counting them inappropriately, these sorts of things. No, it doesn't solve for identification, but in many nations around the world, there is no identification check for voting anyway. Here in Australia, you just you walk into a voting station and you say your name, they look you up in a book, they cross you off and you go vote. So, you know, the, the ID piece is important, but the ID piece is missing at the moment anyway. So right. it feels it fills some gaps, it fixes some of the problems, it does things better, more efficiently, more securely. But it, it's not it's not the silver bullet. Well, I, I don't know how much you were being paid, but I assume you probably were not being paid enough to fix democracy anyway, <laughs> even if that was your pursuit. There may have been a bit of an unfair ask, I think, if that's if that's what people were complaining about. So, you know, I don't know if I believe my own argument here, but I guess I'm curious, the more frequency with which you can conduct elections the less religious they become, right? The, you know, the, the less pomp and circumstance around them, the more it's just a matter of here's the information, you know, do, do you vote this way or that way? I wonder if just more exposure to the process and more frequency of voting is an assistant to Mm. making it a little bit more productive. You know, if I didn't get my way this time, then I don't have to wait four years to get my way the next time, right? Maybe maybe I am willing to try something out, or maybe not. I don't know. It, it could go the it could go the total opposite direction. I guess I'm just curious. No, I if think you have any I thoughts think, on that? I think you're on onto something, uh, and I, I, this goes back to part of uh, the conversation earlier. These these unknown eventuations, uh, implications for technology, which we're not yet quite aware of or can't be sure of, um, but that will go on to change you know, society and the human human condition and behavior and psychology in, in pretty profound ways, you know, the, the knock-on effects, which which just aren't clear uh, quite yet. You know, the, the, the technology that I devised and we built at Horizon State had a, had a very, very clear objective and there were some very, very obvious implications. But what happens next? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Maybe, maybe as a byproduct of one or two governments adopting this, enabling their constituency to vote on policy matters as they arise. No need to vote for a personality. Instead, you are literally looking at a policy and making a judgment call based on your own wants, needs, desires. Maybe over time, what that means for society is that 
these vicious factions, this this extreme left and extreme right, um, begins to dissolve or at least become tempered because the the, the policy decisions uh, have been unbundled. It's it's less tribal. It's more pragmatic. And and look, maybe that doesn't gel with with most people at all, and it's an impossible feat. And, and we're and we're dreaming. But I, I do like to think that what you've just described might be one of those really important, profound, but currently unknown and, and untestable um, eventuations. Hmm. Well, I mean, uh, I'll tell you, as far as the, the general concept of the technology, its ability to be adopted so quickly and seamlessly by anyone who's willing to take the leap is where I think we'll find, you know, in any other sense, the, the same way, right? It'll be the early adopters who pursue this and probably see some gains from it. And then we have to just wait and see what the blowback is about it. But in the same way that there are developing nations, whether it's the Middle East or Africa or areas of Asia, where you might decide, oh, instead of building railways and roadways and all this, all this other stuff like we did and you know telephone networks like we did in, in the Western nations, we can do something with more aggressive technology, more, uh, more advanced technology now and just kind of leapfrog those nations. I think you could, you could say the same for you know, the democratic process and looking at something like this and saying, look, we can go from having nothing to having this thing, which is experimental, but also way more advanced than what developed nations are using. And we might see, yeah. uh, we might see them leapfrog- leapfrogging us pretty quickly there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no doubt that there's um, uh, greater appetite for adoption in developing nations, uh, just because um, in, in some cases, They've got less to lose. Um, they are looking right. for ways to innovate, so on and so forth. You know, I was sitting down uh, in South Korea at a at a city summit. Um, I was presenting there on the topic of this technology to to hundreds of mayors from all around the world. A lot of them wanted to, to chat afterwards. One in particular, which was quite interesting, was a mayor from Afghanistan um, who pulled me aside yeah. into in into a, a pop up stand to have a chat, and he said, "You you have to come to Afghanistan. This is precisely." what we need. It fits our agenda um, for attempting to, to innovate and make progress. Uh, it fits our agenda based on global perceptions of, uh, you know, basically how, how our country runs itself. And I think personally that it's needed because there is a, there is a ton of corruption. The challenge you're going to find uh, is that um, not many of the mayors will agree with me. Uh, so <laughs> it was almost, it was almost in that moment that it dawned on me, like, you know, uh, the places that are going to fight the adoption of technologies like this the hardest are the ones that need it the most because exactly uh, yeah in fact the, the chances are good that the reason it's being resisted so heavily is because there's lots of people having their um their, their backs rubbed at the moment well i'm trying was it twitter and egypt i feel like this is a story i should have known but i, I thought there was some kind of there was some kind of vote uh, that that was you know of no consequence. I, I don't think, but there was something that was conducted democratically using a, a technology platform. It may have just been you know Twitter polling or something. But I thought I remember this a few years ago being in a place where, to your point, the public didn't have the opportunity to have their say, but they used a digital platform to basically show the world what their say actually was and and how it was disjointed from what was actually going on in the administration. Well, there was more than one billionaire in the United States who had spoken to us about the propagation of, of this technology and the, the, the my vote proposition for democracy who were, who were talking about putting really, really, really large dollars behind trying to, to make it happen and make it work over there. And when there was very little uh, response from 
state-based governments uh, on the adoption of such tech or considering this this changed model for governance. Some of these very wealthy individuals said, "Well, let's just take it to market directly. Let's 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 talk about this mm. model for a kind of direct democracy where you get to have your say in policies. Let's put the tech into everybody's hands. Let's plaster the city in billboards. Let's let's cover." Uh, the television in adverts. Let's let's make sure that we can get a, a meaningful, statistically significant number of individuals using this tech independently of actual government. Uh, and then what we'll do is we'll litmus test the actual results. So we'll get people to start having their say, not only on uh, the elections as they happen in real life and, and looking at the, the comparative results and trying to identify, identify potential uh, real uh, moments of voter fraud through those processes, but then also have them vote on the particular policies as well. And if the time ever came, it seems like that would provide a pretty significant amount of leverage to be talking about, you know, is is our government that's actually sitting right now really doing a good job? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I look I look forward to seeing some iteration of that going on in America. And you know what? I guess I, I also look forward to uh, Afghanistan showing America a thing or two about democracy. That that would be just the sickest of jokes. I would, <laughs> a, a big part of me would enjoy that somehow. I don't know. Um, man, oh, that's interesting stuff. Okay. Well, thanks, Jamie. I, you know, I know uh, you just graciously came on to talk about this and you don't really have anything to plug. I don't know if you want to give anyone a shout out with your, with your free moment here. No, look, uh, happy to just have had a good chat. Uh, it's good to finally chat, uh, but no, nothing, nothing to pimp at the moment. Uh, you know, as we talked about off air just earlier, I've got a couple little projects that are currently underway, which I'm hoping to bring to light in 2021. But um, yeah, I've just recently resigned from uh, an executive appointment in the esports industry. I'll have you back on to talk about that, by the way. That's a, that's a whole other yes, realm of, of transportation minimization that is super interesting. I'm partial to Goat Simulator myself, which I think is it <laughs> also very good. <laughs> yeah, it gets it doesn't get enough love. All right, Jamie. Well, thanks so much for uh, for coming on, and a good morning to you, sir, from Melbourne. And again, I, I look forward to having you on to talk about esports because that'll be that'll be an interesting thing as well. Thanks, Mitchell. It was great. I look forward to it. Thanks again to Jamie for being so generous with his time. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack, and thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. Hot takes and hot guests are always welcome. Hit me up at Telekinetic Show on Twitter or telekineticshow.com. Talk soon.